Don't worry, I noticed. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Alright, if you have your Bibles, please open them to Amos chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible, it should be behind me on the screen. Yep. Alrighty, and we're going to start with verse 9. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, and see the great tumults within her, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the thorns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring, that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. So we're in Amos, and we're in the prophets, and we're hearing hard prophecies again and again and again. Um, But we also know that these prophecies, they're valid, they're just, they're right, even though they are hard to hear. And so we're going to go ahead and continue and discuss what it is exactly that we've heard, starting again with verse 9. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, and see the great tumult within her, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Before we go on any further, I do want to make a quick note of our map because, you know, I just want to get it ingrained in us. This is what Israel looked like. Um, All right, so the land of Israel was all that. Judah was down here. And right now, Samaria. That's what we're going to be talking about for the majority of it. Um, though all of Israel and Judah technically qualifies for the prophecy, as we'll see shortly. But in particular, Samaria, and we'll see why Samaria in particular, that city, um, as we continue. So at this point in Amos, we come to a kind of court case against Israel. Amos is told to proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and the lands of Egypt. Now, the strongholds were royal fortifications, and so it is assumed that the leaders of these people groups are called forth. Ashdod, as we may remember, was in Philistia and was actually already condemned. And as we remember the history of Egypt, because we know about Egypt and those of the Philistines, we remember how they were cultures who um, were oppressors. They oppressed other nations quite frequently. Yet, what are these leaders to do? They are assembled on the mountains of Samaria. 
Now again, Samaria, as we just pointed out, was the capital of Israel and was situated on a hill surrounded by other hills and mountains. The leaders of the Philistines in Egypt are to come to see the great tumults, or um, it could be translated great terror within the capital city. This tumult is seen um, by the oppression of the rich upon the poor. So the Lord calls them out on this to the point of saying that they do not know how to do right, that is Samaria. To not do right implies that they don't know how to do what is just, honorable, decent, proper. Samaria has gone so far away from the Mosaic law that they are more akin to the pagans. In fact, it goes further than that, um, that the storehouses, which would normally hold wealth, are actually filled with violence and robbery. In other words, violence against individuals and their property through robbery as well. Thus what we see is that the Lord calls these foreign nations to behold something that they themselves would find appalling. Usually, the Philistines and the Egyptians, they were brutal. We know about them. They were. But more so to their enemies. Instead, the Israelites were abhorrent even to their own people. Ultimately, we find that because of this, because they are behaving worse than even these pagan nations, the Lord informs them that the covenantal punishments will result from their disobedience. And it might be added that these were all promised in the law, these covenantal punishments. As Deuteronomy 28 has at first blessing for obedience, but then the rest of it, It concludes with so many curses that we can't even go over them all right now. It's just tons and tons. They will be surrounded by their enemies. Their fortifications will be of no use against them as they will be broken down. And their strongholds, supposedly holding their riches, will be plundered. And that's the judgment to to occur. Now verse 12, thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Um, There's a slight shift in focus here in verse 12. Whereas in the previous verses we saw those who would trust in fortifications um, hiding behind their walls, now we see those who would trust in something else, something that is um, often just as as similar, which is their wealth. We see, too, how divided, how vivid the imagery is. The Lord informs them, the rich, that just as a shepherd who is able only to recollect um, scraps of a lamb out of the mouth of a lion, so shall it be for the people of Israel. The wealth of those individuals will be scattered so greatly that mere pieces of the wealth will be seen. And we can almost feel what some scholars notice is scorn in this for the wealthy and for what they've been doing. Likewise, there is some evidence of a remnant which will remain. But that remnant will be so minuscule that it, it, it can't even be considered really much of a remnant at that point when it's just a corner of a couch or a cushion. And so verse 13, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the house of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. 
Now, verse 11 begins a new focus of the covenantal court proceedings. We find specifically that there are those who are to hear and to testify against the house of Jacob. Calling the nation the house of Jacob is meant to remind the people of their covenant till, um, that their covenant lasts longer than themselves, that it goes back all the way to the patriarchs. We also notice that the Lord is mentioned twice, once as the Lord God and the second as God of hosts. This likely has been done for emphasis, so that all those who are present, whether the readers such as ourselves or the hearers of the oracle, know that it is from God that this message originates. What is the Lord's pronouncement? What does he say? Judgment for the sins of Israel. It is not necessarily any sin, but a number of transgressions which they have committed against God. In fact, we have seen many in the chapter already so far in chapter 3. However, there is a particular focus as well. And that is that when the judgment comes, God will punish the altars at Bethel, and the horns of the altar will be cut off. Now the fact that there are altars at Bethel at all is a serious atrocity. The people of God were to have a centralized location in Jerusalem for sacrifice. Yet after the civil war, the northern nation of Israel elected other altars to sacrifice. This was a breaking of the Mosaic covenant which um, and will result in nothing but complete destruction for the altars and the cult itself. The horns of the altar were seen as a place of safety. But even they will be unable to protect anyone from the coming judgment. Yet it is not enough that the altars will be destroyed. But those who worship at the altars will experience judgment as well. We see this when God will strike the houses. We notice the term house is actually used four times in verse 15. Once for a winter house, once for a summer house, a houses of ivory, and the great houses. Ultimately, The vast majority of the people of Israel were poor, able to only have one house. Those who are rich and have dealt harshly with the poor have multiple houses. Thus, these houses were monuments of the corruption, and they will be destroyed by God. And now we come to chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Hear the word, you cows of Bashan. Who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring, that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Focus now shifts one last time in this section, um, and actually, this whole these whole verses go together, which is why I put them together. Um, and the target of condemnation are the women of Samaria. We notice Amos calls them cows of Bashan, and I'm not going to dwell too much on that because that is really harsh. But we'll continue. Bashan was known as a place for pasturage, um, and thus for its cattle. Yet, what is it that causes Amos to speak? to these women in this way. The reason is that they are those who oppress the poor and crush the needy. These haughty women are guilty of taking advantage of those who are lower um, in society than they are. Yet, they also say to their husbands or their masters, bring that we may drink. 
So not only do they take advantage of those who are lower in social standing, but also dare to go against those who are meant to be higher in them than social standing. Um, they are the ones who are to be the servants, and yet they force their husbands to serve them instead. In our own time, and I'm going on a stretch here, but in our own time we would say such women are rich, spoiled, and domineering of their families. That's what these kind of women are. Because of this, God swears by his holiness. In other words, God is swearing a high oath against these women, swearing by his own attribute of holiness, that there will come days of judgment against them. Thus God will do what he says. The judgment is kind of interesting. They are to be led away by hooks. While Amos does not prophesy who will, do it, who will be doing the leading, ultimately we know that Assyria in 722, not long after these prophecies were announced, conquered Israel and Samaria, and they were known to lead their enemies with hooks through their noses and their mouths. These women then, who were once considered cows, will now be taken away even as fish. The judgment upon Samaria will be so great that these women will be able to walk through the breaches of the wall, one each straight ahead. This statement about straight ahead is reminiscent of Joshua, when the crumbling walls of Jericho allowed the men to rush straight ahead into the city. It's the same usage. The ultimate conclusion is that their bodies will be cast out completely. In this we recognize two things, um, that they... That some will experience judgment through exile, but others will be killed. And though scholars are unsure what the harmon is, their bodies will be cast into it, and therefore out of Samaria and out of Israel. Alright, the main point. These verses are meant to show the judgment which is going to occur on Samaria. In particular, we see the judgment against those who would feel safety in their cities and in their riches. Unfortunately, the judgment which they will find will bring destruction to their cities, to their walls and their strongholds. And neither will they find hope, though, for their salvation from their wealth, because even that will be greatly dispersed. And because of that, it leads us to our application points. Now, I'm going to be honest. I only wrote one application point, um, besides, you know, the gospel one. And I could have broken it off after I got done everything and said, okay, this is actually like four. Um, so it's a really long application point, and I hope that this makes sense. Um, I think it made sense, but we'll see. Responsibility. Within Amos, we have seen a lot of judgment. This should be of no surprise to the majority of us who have read some, if not all, of the prophets. As we consider them, these prophets, they were messengers from God to call the people back to him to warn of impending judgment for their sins, and to remind the people that they were members of a covenant with God. Judgment happens when that covenant is broken. We see this specifically in the law, when the people are warned of the judgments to occur for covenantal breakers. As such, the people have a responsibility to remain faithful to the covenant. Unfortunately, the people failed to remain faithful to their covenantal responsibility. And as such, they will experience judgment for this. We have seen a few ways that they have failed already. Though this week in particular, we see it in their failure um, when it comes to their worship at a centralized location in Jerusalem. But we also see it in their social injustice. 
Now, many of us may have a problem reading all of this thus far for a few reasons. The first is, we know that the scriptures still speak to us today. But what is it that we are to learn about these judgments? How are these oracles of judgment related to us, or what can we learn from them in the church age? And the second is, with God's judgment itself. We can always have a hard time understanding the judgments of God. We do enjoy hearing about the love of God, but we do not often like hearing about his wrath. Um, And when we read of the destruction which will occur on the people of Samaria, it can be a hard pill to swallow. So, let's go over these two things. Let's start with the second, which concerns God's judgment. Often, we do not think of God's judgment the same way that the prophets warned about. We do not often think of armies coming over our walls, or warfare, or trumpets. Likewise, we may even have little notion that God is involved with these kinds of affairs today. We may not often think of God judging nations through wars anymore. Or we may think that God is not as active a sovereign in the way that he was when the prophets spoke. Yet, that is not the case. In the New Testament, we see that God is sovereign over the nations, especially when it comes to its rulers. We see two examples of this, in particular from John and Romans. In John, when Jesus is talking to Pilate, we read, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given, over, given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And that's John 19.11. In this case, we see that Pilate does not have any authority unless it had been given to him already by God. The same idea is from, uh, found in Romans 13.1, which says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And that's again Romans 13.1. As we see... Leaders themselves are placed by God's own providence on the people. And the leaders, regardless of where they are governing, have a responsibility because of that. So whether one is a king or a president, a dictator or what have you, if you are in a position of power, you have a responsibility with that power to seek justice and righteousness. Thus, if God is in control of those who are highest in society, then logically, He is sovereign over all of the society. As such, being sovereign over all of a society, he has a right to judge any society which does not seek righteousness or justice. We must then be careful not to assume such judgment does not take place today. They still do. God still judges the nations and he will continue to judge the nations as long as there are nations at all. Now this might put some at ease. Knowing this, but let me help further because even if we acknowledge that God is sovereign and that he continues to judge the nations, it can still be hard on us to accept that he actually does it. So what will help us understand the judgments of God? The first thought comes from 1 Corinthians 13. Toward the end of the chapter, Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And that's verses 11 through 12. As we remember, the whole chapter is about love. 
specifically identifying the love of God and the love which we are to seek in our own lives. This statement, however, helps us acknowledge something that Paul himself saw, and that while we are here, we still see things not fully. Even when it comes to the love of God, we only grasp small amounts, not understanding it in full. The same is true of the judgments of God. We can only speculate when it comes to God's judgments and seek Him when it comes to them. There will come a time when we understand things more in full, when we don't um, see things through a mirror darkly. But we're not there yet. But that does not mean that we lose our faith or our hope because we recognize there will come a time when such knowledge will be realized. Now there are two more passages that I think will help us when it comes to the judgment of God. And they are both found in Revelation. We have actually looked at one of them before, but let's consider it again in whole. Um, first we read Revelation 18, 21-24. Then a mighty angel took up a stone with a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence, and will be found no more. And the sound of the harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And the craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And a voice of a bridegrooming bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on the earth. In this passage, we see the city known as Babylon in Revelation is destroyed. It is no more. The judgment of God has been cast against Babylon, and because of it, the wrath of God was poured out. Now I know that there are many who believe that the reaction most would have to such devastation is sorrow. However, the very next thing we read in Revelation is the opposite of sorrow. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged a great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And that's Revelation 19, 1-5. So what do we see instead of sorrow over destruction of this city? We see rejoicing. Why do we see rejoicing? Because the saints no longer are seeing through a mirror dimly. Instead, they see the justice of God on display, and they can do nothing but praise His mighty name for His justice. This will be the case for those who are condemned at the judgment. I have known personally, I, know, I don't know if any of you have, there are many sinners who say, ah, but when your God judges me to hell, you'll feel badly for me. You'll cry. Have any of you ever experienced that? I have. Frequently. But do you know what we'll do at the judgment? Do you know what all of creation will do when that time comes? All of us will rise on our feet at that time and applaud. 
Not because we are against people. Not because we hate people. But because we will at that time finally see the justice of God on display so greatly. And we will better understand Him and His righteousness so much that we will rejoice knowing that our good God has made the right judgment. So that should set our mind at ease in some ways when it comes to judgment. Though we may have a hard time understanding of how God could judge these peoples, we also have um, hope knowing that God's judgments are always good and they are always right. And that in time we will understand these judgments very clearly. Now that long thought leads us to another point that we set aside earlier. And that the question remains, what can we learn from these judgments? What can the church learn from the judgments against ancient Israel, um, the capital city of Samaria in particular? Well, there are a few things. The first is, when the people were called into covenant... They were meant to show two things. How wise the people were for following them. And also, more importantly, the wisdom of God. We see this in Deuteronomy 4, 6-8, through 8, which says, Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding and sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God? so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all the laws that I have set before you today? That is no different from us in our congregations. We too are to show the wisdom of God by how we live, how we manage things within our congregation, the church, and how we live in covenantal relationship. Not only with our God, but with each other as a family in the faith. In this way, we see as Christians, we can learn from the mistakes of the past and be better than they were. We cannot fall into the same traps as the ancient peoples. In their case, they failed to maintain and uphold the law. In our case, we need to learn from the law in order to know how we are to relate to one another and to God. So when the law discusses idolatry, that means that we are to refrain from idolatry. When the law talks about sexual immorality, we are to refrain from sexual immorality. When the law talks about taking care of the poor amongst you, then guess what? We are to take care of the poor amongst ourselves. If we apply the same practices in our congregation as what the law states, then our congregations will show the wisdom of God. Now obviously there's going to be some differences. Um, For example, we certainly do not need to sacrifice anymore. We're not going to put an altar up here. We're not going to take one of David's cows and sacrifice it. I'm sorry some of you were excited. But we're not doing that. Sorry. The truth is, that system of sacrifice is no more. As God himself has sacrificed his only son, Jesus Christ. No sacrifice is required for our failures and for our sins. Christ is completely sufficient. However, that does not mean that we can't learn from the law and seek to honor it by having it um, inform us of how we can relate to one another. Simply put, the law is always going to be the law. It is still holy, just, righteous, and as Paul says in Romans, good, perfect. 
Consider, too, what Jesus says in Matthew five seventeen through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. So far, believe it or not, not all has been accomplished. Until death itself is defeated, we still remain in a world where not everything is accomplished. There are many things that have been accomplished. And the most important until the return of our King is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, without which all else would have little or no meaning at all. Still, because not all has been accomplished, that means that there, we are to understand the law in light of Christ. This is where we can learn from the ancient Israelites and the Judeans. They forsook the law and followed a different way. Christ and his apostles remind us to turn toward the law and understand it in light of what Christ has done. If we want to learn something from these ancient peoples, then it is to not be like them, but to be like Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law. Likewise, and especially, we can look at these oracles and these prophecies against these peoples and remember the warnings. First, they were warned uh, not to rely on their strongholds. Next, they are warned not to rely on their wealth. We should remember the same. We could build up mighty fortresses and we can accumulate great wealth. But if we sacrifice love, grace, and mercy in the process, then our mighty fortresses will crumble and our wealth will be dispersed. This is especially true if we neglect those who are in need amongst us, our fellow brothers and sisters, especially when they are in need. They should be our focus individually and corporately. This does not mean that we neglect our neighbors or treat them as less than human. Of course we love them as they are called to, but our brothers and sisters are especially our concern, and it is right that they are so. Once we seek social justice amongst each other in love, the world will see the wisdom of God and our wisdom, which is merely a reflection of His wisdom. In this way, we can begin to change the world, focusing inward and yet being a vocal voice outward to the society around us, urging the society to seek the wisdom and following God as a society. This is our responsibility to the nations and to each other. The ancients were charged with not knowing how to do right. Let us not fall under the same fallacies. Instead, let us seek the wisdom of God and live by that wisdom. To know what is right and to live by it. In Amos, we saw how that meant with social justice, but it also dealt with families as Amos condemned the women. I told you, there was like lots in this. <laughs> I won't condemn women today. But I will say, and I, uh, Ellen's laughing because I talked to her on the phone this past week, and I said, I might have to say something now because she picked on me. Um, that's all I'm going to say. I didn't write anything about her, but still, she's laughing. But I will say that there is warning for wives within these verses. Do not be like the wives then, but be like the wives you are called to be in Scripture. 
It is interesting to consider the New Testament when it talks about husbands and wives. What I mean is, wives are called to respect and honor their husbands, and husbands are called to honor and love their wives. Did you know that there is no if clause to these? Did you know that it is not conditional to obey these things? In our society, do you know what I often see? Conditions. Conditions. Marriages fall apart because conditions are not quite met. For example, the wife will say to others or to herself, I am not going to respect or honor my husband because he doesn't love me. The husband will say, I am not going to love my wife because she does not honor or respect me. And so the circle goes. Um, Yet such conditions are not found within the scriptures. Consider what it says in Ephesians. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Notice, it does not say that if they fail in their responsibility, that it gives them an out. Instead, we are called to these relationships and live out these relationships regardless of what the other person does. How do we know this? Because Paul relates it not to the relationship itself, but to Jesus Christ. As such, Christ is the foundation, the reason why husbands love their wives and wives submit and respect your husbands. In in that way, we honor Christ. When we love our wives, regardless when wives respect us as husbands, we do exactly the opposite of the ancients whom are prophesied against. Instead, we show the wisdom of God to those around us, show how marriage is supposed to be, and how it can glorify God and last because it is founded on God himself. In this, we have another responsibility to each other and to society at large, to show what it means to have a healthy marriage in Christ. Now, I'm going to take a pause real quick, Betsy. I know that is really hard. (laughs) I am married. I get it. Just this morning, I was talking about how Chris and I are in that state where it's like, are we going to destroy each other today or not? I know, husbands and wives, I get it. (laughs) It is not easy to be married at all. Um, It's not easy to love as a husband your wife as Christ is called to love the church. That is a high calling. It's hard. At the same time, wives, I know myself. I know myself as a husband and as a person. I wouldn't want to respect myself. I barely do. (laughs) But my wife is called to respect me. And that's a scary thought for me too. Um, 
And so when we consider all this, don't think that, um, I guess I want to say, don't think I don't understand. Or don't think that God doesn't understand how these relationships are hard. He does know that they're hard. But that's why we have Christ to pull us along. Even in that. Even in not only the relationships we have with our husbands and our wives, but also with each other. (laughs) Because let's be real. All of us are a family, aren't we? And as such, we're all personal. We all think differently. We all have our different struggles. And sometimes it can be hard to love one another. (laughs) But we can because of Christ. Um, And so that's why I just wanted to take a pause, say that I understand, say that I know it's hard, say that it's hard for me too, because even I have gone back to that and said, I'm not going to love her today. I may have done it today. I don't know. Ask her. Um, But I get it. It's hard. So as we continue through Amos, though, remember that there is responsibility on all fronts. We are to recognize the responsibility of the peoples in the ancient past and to remember our own responsibility to take heed and warning of what it is that they were being judged for. I will not do for, it will not do for us to ignore the prophets who spoke to the dangers of those societies and then live in the same way that they did. It won't do for us to do that. It will not do for us to not take the warning seriously. For if our own societies, whether in the church or the culture surrounding the church, look as the ancient societies looked and acted, then the only result will be judgment. Instead of that, instead of not taking attention, let's be attentive. Listening to the prophets and learning from them and find the better way. God has given us the prophets to warn us not only of these ancient nations, but every nation, and what the cost is in not seeking righteousness as a society or seeking how to do right. So let's be speakers of righteousness in our congregations and also in our societies, being prophetic to speak of the justice which God calls all people to pursue and showing the wisdom of God in all of our lives including our relationships and marriage. Now this leads to the gospel. Justice should always encourage us to consider the gospel. For the gospel is wrapped around all of the attributes of God, but especially his righteousness, his justice, and his love. For our God has shown us a great love through Jesus Christ and has shown us his great righteousness by which we find our salvation. So though we are deserving of judgment, He has given us salvation from our sins, and by this we praise him for all of who he is and all he has done through his Son, Jesus Christ. For through him, we have not only life, but also wisdom is given, showing us not only to live, but how to live rightly. The gospel begins with our origins. God created the entire cosmos by the power of his word. Last of all, he created humanity. To bear his image. In being his image bearers, we share similar attributes with God. Because God is a God of love, reason, knows, can be known, has personhood, and shows hesed, that covenantal love and relationship, we can as well. Likewise, it is from this we understand there is both dignity and sanctity to human life. Yet like God, we are also able to choose. We could have chosen to follow God in obedience in life or disobedience in sin and death. 
Humanity has chosen the latter and has continued to do this ever since. Because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world, they're all broken. It is also because of this we continue to accrue a greater and greater moral guilt against us each day. And unfortunately, it is not just a feeling of guilt, but true guilt before a righteous judge. Despite all of this sorrow and all the darkness that comes from human freedom, God did not give up on humanity. Instead, we find that he had a scheme, a plan, all along to save us from our darkness. And this scheme, this plan, involves sending his light and his word into our darkness. And that was his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is because of his life, death, and resurrection we find propitiation, redemption from our sins. We find justification, being made right with God, and sanctification, being made new by God, by his victory on the cross. We are given his spirit which guides our steps, all because of what Christ has done. All of this is possible. As we saw earlier, all that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance. We are to turn away from our sin, turn toward our God. Our lifestyles are to change, falling in step with the scriptures, with Christ himself, and the spirit who indwells us in love, and all for this, the glory of God. The second is faith in Christ. We recognize our complete dependence upon the Son of God, our Christ, upon the Christ, for our salvation recognizing that apart from Christ, our great deeds are as filthy rags. We recognize that we can never do enough good to attain the righteousness of God. Christ, however, is strong enough to save us and to bring us into righteousness and to justify us before our God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. If one is disobedient in these things, then there is only death. None can stand before God with their own deeds in hand because his own deeds will only show his guilt. Therefore, the disobedience we, they will find, because of their disobedience, they will find themselves before a judge guilty of all their sins. And because of this, they will face the wrath of God. For those who are obedient, however, there is life. Their relationships with God themselves, each other, and the world begin to be redeemed. They can experience victory over sin in this life, not perfectly, but no longer is sin the absolute ruler in their lives. Ultimately, they will find that they are co-heirs of an eternal kingdom where they will experience the love of God forever. Again, give thanks for this. Give thanks for this gospel, for our great God, and for the prophets who give us warnings to follow after God. Let us be a righteous people, desiring the justice of God in our congregations, as well as in the societies and cultures in which we live. In this way, when we follow after God, we display the wisdom of our great God who guides us. Seek these things. Learn from the past. And press forward in grace, peace, mercy, righteousness, and love. And our love of our great God, seeking to live in His wisdom in all things. Amen. Let us go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your righteousness. We thank you for your love and for your mercy. It is because of this we can look back on the ancient Sumerians. We can look back on the ancient city or ancient kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And we can see the judgments and we can learn from them. 
we can see how we should not act, how we should be a people who does know how to do right and then to do it. And it's because of your son, Jesus Christ, that this is possible. It is because of what he has done that we can live in this way. So Lord, continue to lead us, continue to guide our steps, and may we ever praise and glorify your name forever and ever. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.